Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Beyond the Bench. I am your host, Brandon Stemwoodell. On today's episode, I have the privilege to sitting down and talking to former West Brom player and Minnesota Kicks legend, Alan Merrick. How's it going today, Alan? I'm doing great. Yeah. yeah I'm fine. We had a great opportunity of talking to Ian Barker before, and one of the things that he said is that you just have to go with technology the way that it is. This is kind of one yep. of those moments. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, so, we're both in our offices, so it's uh, it, 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 it works. It's okay. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Alan, I mean, we've got a, a lot of new listeners, I'm assuming, and uh, everything like that. So why don't, you, why don't you give us a little bit of a background about yourself? Uh, my background, uh, I was born in England. Uh, at a place called um, Birmingham. It was a suburb of Birmingham. So uh, I'm from what is sort of the, the Peaky Blinders area within Birmingham. Uh, basically, uh, growing up there, I was born in the 50s. So um, that was just after the war. Uh, so everything was still being built and developed around. The first thing I remember about playing soccer or having an interest in soccer is when I was probably about three, three or four, and I had uncles who were still living at home, um, a few years older than me, obviously. There, but they, they were only, they were only five or six years older than me. So I used to hang out with them on the street. Uh, we used to throw coats down in the middle of the road, and we played pickup soccer uh, up and down the street. Obviously, there weren't that many cars or vehicles around, and there were still horse carts being pulled around with delivering milk. And I, you remember picking up your, your coat and uh, belongings to make way for the milk cart to go by, deliver milk, and then we'd play again. Um, so that was my first experience to playing the game of soccer, and it was with big guys. I was three, and they were ten. And so five and five, six, seven years old than me. And so my uncles were the ones who um, introduced me to the game via their friends. And um, I just picked up the game. And obviously I, I gained confidence by playing against big guys. And they were always accommodating. They'd, they'd make me, they'd allow me to not make them or go buy them perhaps and get a shot on goal and just be nice guys. And, and that's what I remember. That, 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 that was a fun experience of how to play, how the game was played. Um, moving from one house, I was in Northfield, uh, Birmingham. And I moved from Northfield, Birmingham to the other side of the city to a little village called Water Orton. And uh, that was um, a little village that, a typical English village with a stream running through it, a railway track. A railway station and access to other cities via the uh, bus services, etc. Um, so moving across the city uh, allowed me to expand uh, my playing, and it was where, at the age of eleven, I went to what is called a grammar school. So it's like a high school, but it's got a special classification. It's you have to take an exam to get into this type of high school. So sure. I went to I went to Colesville Grammar School, and I was fortunate enough there that I had two masters, sports masters, who um, gave me a great experience in athletics and gymnastics and and just all the sporting activities. I was already a good athlete and played for. Uh, select teams before before the move so when i was when i was 10 and 11 i was playing for a select team and it was uh, birmingham boys so i was representing birmingham uh which is a major city it's the second largest city in in the uk hmm. and um so representing birmingham at that age represented that i would i was doing something right and uh being recognized um I don't remember any coaching by, from the, from, uh, until sort of going to grammar school to these um, teachers who were at a, they came from a renowned college, Loughborough College, which is, a, it just develops massive numbers of great teachers. Uh, and they, 
they're, they're all sort of getting their master's degrees and PhDs in sports psychology and, and the sports. And I was fortunate to get a couple of those guys who helped me along in those informative years of uh, 11, 12, 13. By the age of 12, my playing with and representing Birmingham in, in tournaments, etc. Um, that's where the, the, the Birmingham soccer clubs, the professional clubs went to scout. And so within the Birmingham area, there's Birmingham City, which is right in the middle. You've got West Bromwich Albion, which is where I eventually ended up, up mm -hmm. five miles north. Then there's Wolverhampton Wanderers, who are another three miles north. Then you've got Warsaw and you've got Coventry. And then you've got other sort of circle Leicester um, clubs that are all in that vicinity. Uh, so when I was 12, I signed a contract with West Bromwich Albion. Uh, I signed school by forms. And um, basically it was, I signed a contract that allowed me to go to, uh, to train on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And, um, and so I went to West Bromwich Albion and got that experience of being coached for the mm -hmm. first time. And obviously the, the junior coaches there were former players. And so they had great expertise. They'd had great experiences and they translated that into the game for me. And they told me exactly what to do and told me emphatically what not to do. What Don't you do. ever do that type thing. <laughs> and it was like, oh, okay. Um, so I, I think you've experienced that in, a, in, in sort of a camp life. Um, yeah. Where a coach tells you, hey, you're doing great doing this. Why the heck would you do anything else? And right. so you, you learn those lessons quickly. Um, how did you get, how did you get scouted to, to get on with West Because I was, represent, I was representing Birmingham. Okay. Birmingham boys, and we were playing in tournaments. I remember going up to Liverpool and playing against Chester La Street and that's a little suburb just outside of Liverpool. Sure. And um, so going and playing in those areas, that's where the scouts from the all of the clubs in the in, in England, that's where they would congregate and watch and watch us play. Sure. So I, I was so, somewhat of an exception because I was left-footed. Oh, and so sure. not only left-footed, I, I had a really good left foot. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I played for 17 years as a pro, and I think I only used my right foot twice, and that was to kick a player. <laughs> I'm joking. But it's, like, it's really, my, le my left foot was so good that I'm going, well, I don't think I will... Uh, I, I'm not going to put my right leg up to do that. I'll just bring it in with my left leg. And so I'd bring it on with the outside of my left foot and bring it down and, and it would be fine. Sure. And so um, obviously li living, growing up in the fifties and the sixties, uh, it was before television. Right. And so, you know, I can't imagine it now, yeah. but we, we didn't have television. You, if you wanted to watch soccer, you had to go to the cinema and watch the Pathé news or a news clip that would depict some form of soccer. Uh, the televisions only became sort of prevalent in, in the mid sixties. And my parents didn't have a TV in the early sixties. I had to go to a neighbor's house to watch TV. And it was, it was two stations, BBC and ATV. Sure. Uh, ITV and um, uh, getting to watch soccer was impossible on on that format or in that environment. I was fortunate that my dad took me to the soccer games. He took me to Birmingham City. He was mm -hmm. a supporter of Birmingham City and an avid supporter. And so um, I was fortunate to be taken from the early age of sort of eight and nine. And that's where I picked up the game, really, was watching the superstars of Birmingham and the other clubs that they were playing. Going to the park after the game and trying to emulate that experience. And invariably, it was by myself because sure. there was, I only, it was only my dad and I traveling to the game and getting home. 
And so there were no neighborhood kids who would do that. So it was almost like I became a coach then because I would go with the group of kids that were at the park at that time or playing in the street. And I'd tell them the story of what I'd just done at St. Andrews, which is the name of the stadium mm -hmm. for the Birmingham City, Birmingham City team. I'd say, well, you should have seen this player do this. And this is what this other guy did. And so I would do a recital of the features of the game that, that happened. And um, the other kids would try and emulate it. And I'd, I'd try and explain it to them and show it and demonstrate. And so uh, it's like I was doing that as eight and nine. So it's like it's the progressions that I've done in the game where I've, eventually I coached professionally. It was all from that experience of watching a game, reliving it, trying to regurgitate elements that were important to me at that time. And the kids took notice of it and um, uh, we developed as players. So what did it, so kind of recapping a little bit too. So when you, when you signed your first professional contract, what did that mean to you? How did it make you feel and, and where, where did you see it going? Well, my first professional contract was uh, when I was 17. Sure. So that's after I'd left high school and, you know, completed my, that portion of education, I, West Brom offered me a contract and, and I went to the club and you, you sign a professional contract, but it's really, you are, show, you are signing form that makes you an apprentice. So okay. you, you're a full professional, but you are an apprentice. So um, you have to, you have to earn your living as it were, as it was almost servient in terms because you had you to make sure that the showers were clean, the restrooms were clean, towels were brought in, boots were put up in the drying room. You know, England is a wet country mm -hmm. and the boots used to take ages to dry between games, etc. And there were special tasks that apprentices had to do. And uh, the clubs had, had a large, um, large squads of players there. They would have probably 20 first team players, 15 reserve team players, and then they would have 14 uh, apprentices. The apprentices would be doing all of the, the grunt work, but you're in that same environment as the pro players. When I was, when I was 17 and in those locker rooms, the, the first team had a locker room and then the reserves and the, and the apprentices had another locker room. Mm -hmm. But you're intermingling with the superstars at the club at that time, you know, national team players from multiple countries. And so the experience is rubbed off as to what, what a good player looks like and what the expectations are. And it's there in front of you. And if kind, you don't kind look of paying at it, your dues, essentially, right? Like, so you were, you were doing yeah, all this grunt yeah, work well, so that it, way you it, earned it, your stripes. Well, sort of like that. It was a lot of it was because the management, the, the president of the club, the owner of the club, as it were, um, he was just, he, he was just a cheapskate. And so he did everything on cheap. And so that was more like, and that's the better description perhaps rather than, uh, um, paying your dues. Right. So, but it, it's, uh, it worked out for me. I, I signed as a 17 year old on apprentice forms by the age of 18, I was a full-time pro and, uh, I played on the England youth team in the junior world cup in France, um, played against, uh, Bulgaria, Russia, and the Netherlands and all of the, the Bulgarians and the Russians they were not under 18, like, like, like we had, they, oh, I, they, I mean, some of these guys, some of these guys, they, they looked as if they were past 25 and possibly <laughs> as high as 30. And it was yeah. like, it was, this was, it was a, an eye opener to go, Oh my goodness. Uh, so, uh, but th those were great experiences. We didn't lose a game, but we didn't go through either. One, one of the teams the, the, the Russians dominated it sure. and they had a lot of, older players, mature players. What but I, I had a great experience learning. There I was playing, I, was, I played either left back or central midfield. Sure. 
And so I eventually, my best position was was left left sided defender. Sure. And so almost as a sweeper, but when you're playing four four two, then your two center backs are alongside each other, but you know, if the one center center half is going, then I would drop off and do all the covering and cleaning up. True. So um, that was, I think, that was probably my best position. But I also played in the central midfield as a defensive midfield player there, um, and so I was versatile. Sure. But it, it was beca- it was because I was left sided left footed player. Sure. Sure. And th- I remember you telling me this, like you know, just in conversation and such. But I remember you saying that. You guys didn't actually have like specific jerseys that they were handed to uh, you like the the day of the game and. Yep, it was one. It, the, the, there were there were eleven shirts. That was it. And what and, and you know if you weren't a goalkeeper then you would get one of the other ten shirts. Sure. So the goalkeepers didn't even have, the goalkeepers never had numbers on it those days. But it was uh, yeah we we had ten shirts and you normally picked it, the right back would be two, left back would be three, six, six would be the center back, uh, left-sided, set five would be the center half, uh, center half. Then you'd go across the line, seven would be a right winger, 11 would be a left winger, nine and eight would be target players forwards. And then you'd have uh, four, four, in the, four in the middle as well, depending on what the formation was. Yeah, I think, I, I, think I gave you 10 numbers. Yeah. <laughs> That sounded about right. So, I mean. so, so, so when, when, when in the modern day now, when I hear people going, "Oh, it's he's a number six and I'm going, "In what era is he a number six? <laughs> I just take my head and going, um, "You know, this is alien. What, 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 what position is a number forty-three these days? What, what position is Beckham as a twenty-three? Yeah, and I'm going, don't, don't go that route of, of having numbers for a position. You just go. Call it what it is. So at your time, it, like what made you, when you signed your contract in, at 18, so yeah. did, did was there constant negotiations? Like, is it more of like the modern day still where you have like a, an agent and they kind of talk no. for you? And No, no the, 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 it was like, well done, Alan. You, you've really impressed us. We want to sign you to a contract. Here you go. This is what you're earning. That's it. Do you want to play? Do, do, do you want to play for us? Or not? Uh, yeah, it, it was pretty. It, it was it, it was different. L- a little later on, the, the, the negotiations came later. Um, sure. Like when I when I was eighteen, I made the first team and started to play, and uh, so I kept on getting bumps in terms of uh, of decent salary. Sure. But the, 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 there wasn't the money in the game in those days. There was no right. TV. Right. There was you know, the, there was very little. Uh, marketing going on. It, it was the it was the the local garage. It was the local butcher. It was the local painting group. It was the lo- local um, me- mechanical company who had got the supporters boards as it was called. Sure. That around the around the field. Sure. And, and there was there was and and there were actual signs. So you were buying signage and it was actual signs. It's not like you see now with all of the digital experience that's there and the the graphics that they can put up there yeah i mean you you, you you can you can watch a movie on those new devices oh my gosh that wasn't they're, the case yeah. they're so that wasn't the but... case in the, in the 70s and 80s sure and but i mean even still like coming coming from west brom and stuff like that like i've heard of west brom and you know i've lived in the states my whole life and you know they they've had some some great great teams and you it seems like it's it's nice because it, you came from a program where you kind of developed it and kept it going to where it is now um like obviously they got relegated this year but still yeah they're on a cycle and uh again you have to look at west brom and and their management they some some clubs they they're able to go for decades without major overall and uh and interference as it were from the, the hierarchy in the in the back rooms but West, sure. West Brom have had multiple ownership changes, and um, I think that's affected them and not got them a cohesive management thrust that allows them to um, flourish even more. Sure. Because they, they are really, they're one of the original 10 clubs in India. 
I didn't so know. it's uh, I mean the heritage that they have is phenomenal and um, hopefully they can get back into that niche of of being a dominant force sure so like talk a little bit more about like West Brom and the the in in the sense of the culture of the area you know you've talked a little bit about like a little bit around west brom you talked about like where birmingham is and all of that but what was like yeah. the 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 culture of of the people what was what was that like is being a professional- yeah that, that, that's 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 a good question it, it's like west bromage is a very industrialized place i mean there's lots of heavy industry there and so you, you if you if you're trying to compare the cultures birmingham is the main city west bromwich is one of the um outer outer cities sure um with all of its with all of its um they call it the black collar area because the people who work there are in factories and i don't know whether you've seen peaky blinders and watch that show type thing Mm -hmm. so that typifies what West Bromwich is renowned for, and that is hardworking uh, individuals who are in that they're in jobs that are they get dirty, they get grubby, um, and so in the, the the difference is in in Birmingham, that's a white collar type work there where there's there's a lot more commerce going on. There's a lot more um yeah there's there's just a lot more cleaner environment as it were sure the the culture for west brom is that if you if your parents were part of west brom everybody else in that family stays with west brom so they're very loyal to and proud of their heritage and and what they've achieved sure Tell us, tell us more about um, so playing for West Brom. What was yeah. what was probably one of your most memorable games that you had for West Brom, and and why? Um, one that comes to mind, and I don't know why, but well, I suppose because I, I I was a defender, so I didn't score many. But it was a game against Manchester United, and um, we were I think we we went one up. They tied it, and I scored what would be the winning goal from a corner. And I've seen the picture of it where it's like I rise out of the, you know, off the floor, and I'm, it looks like I'm at least two feet higher than anybody else. And I had the ball into the net. And it was one of the few games that is that was on TV. So it was, that was a televised game on a Saturday night. And so, um, you get a little bit more prestige from that where other people go, oh, that was an incredible goal. Um, and so that that was sort of uh, in the, that was real early 70s, seven, probably 70, 71. Beyond the Bench is sponsored by Bipro, the ideal lifestyle choice for athletes and health enthusiasts by providing clean protein without artificial ingredients or sugars. Whether you're looking for a pre or post-workout supplement or a quick drink on the go, Visit modisports.com to receive 25% off your next BiPro item. So how, how long were you with West Brom? Well, I signed when I was 12, and I left when I was 26. So I was there for 14 years, but on a professional contract, I was only there for, set, uh, for 10. And that's, that's another reason uh, why I, I left at that age is because the, the chairman of the board, the guy who was running it all, didn't want to get, pay me for being there with 10 years service. Anybody who has 10 years service there is awarded a testimonial game where wow. you have, you basically have the, the actual team, the squad of players, and then you either bring in another team from somewhere or you bring in uh, an all-star team and make an all-star team. And then you as a recipient of a testimonial you would take all the funds that were generated from that from that game. Sure. And he just didn't um, want to do the, that for you? He didn't want to do that for me. Yeah. <laughs> so so that's when I came to the United States. And um, so like how did that all spark? That, well, uh, the 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 coach manager of, of the kicks was Freddie Goodwin. 
of Freddie Goodwin was also the head coach manager of Birmingham City, the club just down the road, ah. and the club I, I the club I grew up with, and the club I supported as a youth. Um, he tried to sign me three times from West Bromwich Albion to Birmingham City, and I knew nothing about it. I had no knowledge of his interest, no knowledge of the offer, and it would have been a wonderful move for me to, sure. you know, because I, I I played obviously in a ten-year period there. I played 167 games or something like that, so I, I wasn't getting full-time playing time in in the first team, but I was uh, I was an integral part of the squad. But going to another team, another club, then it gives a new di- new di- dimension to your career and, and what happens. Uh, it also would have been a, a big boost in my uh, earning capacity. Sure. So um, he 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 tried to sign me for three three separate events, and um, he found out that I was becoming a free agent and was going to be able to uh, negotiate whatever I needed. Mm-hmm. So he was here in the United States, in Minnesota, and he called me uh, in March. And by April, we'd signed a contract, and I was actually in the, in the United States. So I came over because it was Freddie Goodwin. I knew him in Birmingham. I'd watched his games. I'd watched him as a coach and a manager, and uh, it made sense. And I had a, two young kids, uh, a one-year-old and a three-year-old, and um it was a chance to get them the idea of what the united states is about i'd i'd already been on a tour to the united states and canada in 1968 and so i know exactly what was happening over here so i thought it was a good opportunity to let them have a vacation see what it's like and we make decisions from there so came to the kicks and we made that a successful club and i stayed with them for five years i had one one year hiatus, uh, didn't get on well with the coach who was here. So I had a one year hiatus and um, then sudden, then came back. And then the ownership of the, of the kicks was, was in a disarray and it was sold to an, a British group who shouldn't have been allowed to own a club. And so they put it into litigation that we couldn't extract it from. So it was, it was a strange, I mean, when 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 the Minnesota Kicks left, we were averaging thirty-two thousand fans a game, and we'd done that we'd done that for three years in a row, and it was basically double of what the Twins were were getting. I mean, the Twins would have fifteen thousand a game, we would right. have thirty-two average, and we had several shutouts. Of, uh, not shutouts. We we did have some shutouts of of games, but yeah. we had sellouts of games. Wow. Where we we filled we filled the the old Met, Met Stadium with 46,000 people. When Pele came, when we had concerts that were played in afterwards, you know the Beach Boys played a concert straight afterwards, so it was like mayhem in in the in the parking lots and yeah. stadium. Well, just it's just an absolute event. Like, what was what was such the the difference as far as like playing over over in England to then coming here? Like, what was what's the the difference in culture that you would say at that time? Um, I don't. I mean, the, the culture is England is in, and they have you know that they, they have a pretty stable culture going through each of the cities, each of the venues of a club, the culture is made, made there and it depends. If it's, if it's West Brom, it's black collar people, are, you know, honest to goodness people who are full of endeavor. Um, Birmingham City is more white collar. Uh, London, you start to get changes in London with the big clubs there as well, who build their own culture, Arsenal, storied clubs, um, so it, culture, culture doesn't change that much from, from, from city or county, uh, to cities in the, in, in the UK, sure. uh, in, in, in the U S I, I think the culture is, is inherent as to what state it is. Sure. I mean, Minnesota is Minnesota. Nice. Everybody, 
everybody treats everybody with dignity and respect and there's only a few people who don't do that unfortunately mm. um so playing in playing in the states was where uh, we knew coming into minnesota is that they don't know what the game of soccer is so we had a different culture going on where we were educators of of the twin cities population and then the greater twin cities and then it was like out into the boonies i remember going up to duluth and down to albert lee and out to uh black kapal and just doing clinics and sessions to create a culture mm. this is what soccer is about you know you've got 11 players on the field around ball nobody can handle it except the goalkeeper and you'd have to start from scratch to build that soccer culture um right. and i remember going in the winters of 77 and 78 i went to every minnesota high school and middle school every single one we used to do three clinics a day wow. and you know traveling through snowstorms and having an assembly of the school where everybody would be in the gymnasium you know seated or the auditorium where whichever they've got and we will be doing a soccer clinic and trying to get the, you know, find out who the most popular teacher is and bring them out so that we can get them to head a ball and to make a fool of themselves and get the, get the headmaster or headmistress of the school, the principal, mm. get them out to do the same thing. And, and then it, it worked because we had a great following. Absolutely. So, you know, and there were, there were, there were four of us who were, were the principal instructors and doers of them sure um so you were so, no longer like doing the grunt work and stuff like that you were you were the one that was more up on top and stuff huh uh yeah oh yeah well what I, I mean i was 26 then i was in my prime as a soccer player so it's sure. like i'd already done i'd already done the grunt work as to <laughs> you know how to play this game and how to get by um, sure yeah so, so so I guess one of the things that I, I I've been mentioning is the culture, but I guess the one piece that I'm I'm wanting a little bit more of is what was what's the difference in the environments that you've been able to be a part of? So over in England, the environment there, as far as the obviously the people there, but the event itself, like what was the, what was the environment like in the dressing rooms and all of that too? There's not much there's not much change in the locker rooms, etc. Uh, you've got you've got a lot more. Well, you've got a lot of passion, the pent up passion with a lot of clubs. Mm. So the fans are, are, are somewhat hostile. They do not like another club to come into their facility and to um, take advantage of their team. So mm. that, that sort of is, is, for some players, that was intimidating. Like going up to Liverpool and playing there and you see the cup and when, when I was playing, this was before they had all seat stadiums. There used to be terraces sure. with just barriers that stopped the rush of fans getting up on their tiptoes and toppling over and going forward, like the Hillsborough massacre that was there. Um, so things changed because of some of those fans who were so excited about their team that they caused accidents to happen in the terraces. Uh, but the verbal abuse that the 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 uh, opposite fans give each other was is just an it, it's just a natural thing for me. Um, hopefully, it doesn't get out of hand at any time. But um, that that's the that's your culture. It's who's got the best songs, who's got the funniest people that can mimic and and make a little fun of the opponent, and it becomes prevalent. And, and also raucous at times, but um, it, it's one of those where learning the game, the culture that I learned sports in is that you play like crazy during the game. Uh, and then as soon as the whistle is gone, you, you, you're back to treating each other like pure human beings and you um, take away all the animosity that you just fired up. In, in any encounter that you play against another team. So sure. those are, those are, as I said, the, the two uh, 
the two Fayette teachers that I had that were you know, both from Loughborough, they taught me all of those principles of, of behavior uh within the structures that they had within their games when i played basketball field hockey rugby soccer cricket field and track i mean i did absolutely everything within the the structure of my high school and so that gave me a great grounding as to uh to be realistic of what a sport is about and build that culture that you're talking about so sure. it becomes it manifests itself in a in a higher level of comprehension of it, like the teachers that I had made sure that it was implanted in me as to the correct approach, the correct disciplines. Sure. So like in the, how, cause again, like soccer was just so new and no one knew anything about it. How did, how did yep. the environment change there? Like people, you said 32,000 people came to, to a game no we averaged we averaged the averaged oh gosh so so even there was more people than that at some of the games so again like oh yeah yeah, yeah like yeah. what was the the environment like there i mean the most that i played in front of was was fifteen thousand, and i thought that, that was electrifying and i was like yeah. you know right in the city of detroit just nothing yeah. but people yeah. there and you're warming up and people are screaming and yelling at you and Everything about you what, and what your you got mother. Two, and... I think you've got you, you've got two or three levels of of, um, uh, of performance going on here. So sure. as soon as you get the 30,000 30, plus mm -hmm. and more, the, there's so much noise going on there that it just becomes a hum. Yeah. And so you can then get into tune with that hum and just you know it's like um, you know you it's like you see the Buddhist monks like you know, sitting down and praying and they. Mm, and it's that hum sure. that you get into. Uh, yeah. it, it, very often you can hear sections of the crowd starting to come up with chants. And so then, then it depends. I mean, that's when the culture is developed where they're doing funny songs, where they're making fun of the opponent. And, and like in England, they say, well, they're taking the mickey. It's like it's, you know, they, they're giving them, the, giving them the business type thing. Yeah. And so, that, that's when that's when it becomes hilarious for me because you're doing your job and, and you're waiting for the next um, outrageous element to unravel within the crowd. Sure. Yeah, it's just it's so it's so interesting to me because I obviously like I've been to like some of the Minnesota United games and you know I, I feel like it's yeah. so electric and yet I'm so curious to know like if it's if it's comparable, like it, how how much has it grown since since you originally? It it, it, it hasn't it hasn't grown anymore. I mean, it's like it's it is what it is. It's right. one of those it's one of those principles of of the event. Mm. This is what this is what happens. So get used to it real quick because we don't want you to get stage scared and do and be unprepared. Sure. So be prepared for horns to go off. Be prepared to be booed when you make a bad pass. Be prepared sure. to accept adulation when you do something good. But remember, the game goes up, and so it's like you've got to be as you've got to be as level-headed as you possibly can. You can't you can't do strange things within the structure of the game. You can't overstep the mark. You can't you don't want to overstimulate yourself so that you pull a muscle, do something strange, have a, you know, sort of a, a crazy event happen to you. You need to be cool, calm and collected. And that was the easy thing for me because it was like, it, it happened to me from a very young age uh, with West Brom, our reserve team, we used to get four or 5,000 fans sure. because there was no TV. So they came, they came to the reserve games. When, when we were playing, if we were playing Aston Villa, at, at Villa Park, then you couldn't get into that stadium because it was packed. Mm -hmm. So the West Brom fans would we'd be playing Villa Reserve, so you'd have a reciprocal game going on. So sure. the fixture was West Brom are playing Aston Villa this weekend. Reserves are playing, and the first team, and perhaps the second, you know, second and third youth teams that they've got there. So sure. everybody would be playing each other for. Pride and prejudice. 
and so it would be it would be unveiled and you at the reserve game in the in a venue like that we'd get four or five thousand fans and they'd be um looking at the score board because that's all there was there was no no graphics there was no tv commentary so there was probably radio commentaries going on but not everybody had a radio that was one of the early early 70s so it was like um it, it was a mad mad situation that you found encountered sure so i mean like that it so based on everything that you've been saying so far too like those psychological aspects from from your uncles playing with them and playing with people that were older than you and all of that too like don't you feel like those psychological pieces really helped you with growing that confidence to be able to handle a lot of that that banter that you were that you were getting as a as a player um no it, it, it's like it it, it all becomes ingrained in, in your day-to-day activities within the game. It's um, you, 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 you understand what the coaches are looking for. You know, on a Tuesday and a Thursday night when I was a, a young player, it was, um, it, it was I listened to the instructions of the coaches. I, I admired what they'd done as players. They were informational. They were instructional. They, they cut to the quick. There was no BS. It was do this, do that. And so it was the structure and the culture is uh, transforming young players into players who know exactly how to handle each situation. Mm. I, I mean, we, we had a gymnasium at West Bromwich Albion. It was, it was like a basketball court but the walls were 15 foot walls and we used to have two holes in the ends where the goals were. Mm. And you'd play five, five V five in there and you get absolutely battered against the walls. I mean, the physical, the physical exertion there and the physical presence of, I remember playing in there against the first team when I'm sort of 15, and I suddenly find myself that one of them called me in to, to play because one of the players walked off with an injury. And one of the players called me in, Merrick, come on, get in here. And so I'm playing with all of the first team players as a 15 year old uh, on a, you know, a, the, the apprentice con. It's like, oh my goodness, that shot just missed me. And it was going at 70 miles an hour. It would have just taken my head up. You know concussion time yeah. uh, and th- and then if you if you messed up on your first touch you know you you were going to be eaten alive by these guys i mean and they, they they took no quarter it was like they'd pin you up against the wall and you'd, you'd be brushing off cement from your forearm or the side of your head where you just clattered in, into this solid brick wall sure there was no way no way of shying away from the physical contract contact that was in there and the the uh, environment that that set up, it was like that's why I became a really really competent one touch player. I didn't need to. You don't need to. You learn that you don't. You know, you've got to be an unbelievable skill to be able to exist in that environment right. when you've got 180 pounds, fully grown athletes who are in prime condition and they want the ball. Yeah, and you've got it, and they're going to get it. And so you go, there's a reality there where, you know, the coach on the sidelines, get rid of it quick. Yeah. And you go, oh, yeah, I think I know what you mean. It, it's just reinforced that you don't do that. You must do this. Yeah. And so those environments are very difficult to create because who would know that they'd send a young kid in because a player got injured. But that happened and you have to be prepared for that even. Otherwise, sure. you, you couldn't be, you, you couldn't be, you couldn't be shy about being in that environment. You had a, you 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 had a stand up for you know your presence in amongst these guys. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I I I can only imagine that. You know, in all of that too, they they're just educating you on on being prepared for that hostile environment. You know, when you if you went to to a rival game and you have to be prepared for 
what's going to happen. You know, I feel like that culture just kind of created itself for you there. What was yeah, one of your well, leading on from that? They, they put that culture into you. And, um, uh, and if you don't step up to the mark, then you don't stay in that culture very long. No. So no. there's sort of a, a written law where you better be ready for it because they're not going to mess around. The, 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 you haven't got a lot of time. You have, sure. to be, you have to be on your metal and doing it correctly real quick. Beyond the Bench is provided by Modi Sports. Modi Sports is the ultimate youth soccer training tool, utilizing 3D motion capture technology to teach soccer skills and drills that can be studied from any angle. Coaches, parents, and players can download the Modi Sports mobile app from the Apple App Store and Google Play. Check us out at modisports.com. What was what was one of the like what was one of your favorite stadiums to play in? Oh, um, Liverpool. I mean, Anfield is tremendous. Yeah. Um, and Villa Park is is also one of those iconic stadiums in in England, and obviously with it being in Birmingham, um, they they were way ahead of the learning curve or the stadium curve there. So Villa Park, I mean, that's that's where they used to play all of the FA Cup uh, rounds on a neutral ground. And um, so it's still a magnificent stadium. Uh, obviously, now you've got Newcastle built a super stadium up north. Uh, United Stadium was always a great place, Manchester United. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though it's always crazy to me that they endanger the athletes because of the sloping bank slope. Yeah, I've, I've always wondered it, that. It, it, it's, it's, really, it's really sort of mind-boggling to me to go. There's, the more players should probably have hurt themselves on this, but um, it, yeah, it, that, that, that's sort of a, an abnormality that uh, still exists and that, that's where the cultures are, are, are developed again. Right. Well, and like Villa Park is probably one of my favorites, like before they before they did the renovations, because the fans were so close to, oh, to yeah. the field. Yeah. And yeah. now they've done those renovations and fans are further away. It was the same thing with uh, West Ham United. Um, where were they? Well, they've, 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 they've taken over the Olympic Stadium. So it's like yeah. that's just an outrageous stadium for them to, to be able to just slide into. That's that's great progress for them. Absolutely. Absolutely. What was one of your favorites here in the United States? What was, what was one? Giant that stadium. Giant stadium. When we played the Cosmos. Uh-huh. Against the yeah. great Pele. So we played, played in there 76,000 people. Wow. What was that like? What was that like to play? Hostile. The, yeah. Oh, it, it was hostile, but playing against Pele, it, I mean, he was such a great figurehead. Um, he's, he's a great human being. He's, you know, he's, he's excellent off the field as well. I mean, he's sure. very amiable, very amiable. Um, you know, Mary and I had dinner with him here once when he came into town uh, at the Walker Art Museum. And uh, it, it's just a pleasure to be around his company and players like him. It's like, and there are so many still in the United States that stay. He's, sure. he's in New York. Yep. Yeah. He's he, in New York. He didn't go too far. And I know that there's, there's a lot that like uh, Maldini actually, um, he, he was in Florida for the longest time. He owns uh, yeah. Miami FC or something like that. It's a, yeah. I believe it's an NPSL program. Um, but that's, that's incredible. Um, so, so how long did you play here in the United States um, before, I, before retiring? I played, I, I played, I played six years. Six years. And then six what? Years. I came in seven, came in 76 and I, I left playing from the U S national team, team America. When, when the club sort of disbanded, then I decided that uh, I, I had tagged my family and the kids moving from state to state. I'd been in too, too many cities in, in a short period of time, and I needed to get stabilized again and brought them back to Minnesota. So I, I, came, back to, I came back to Minnesota in 82, sure. no, 83. 
I came back in 83 uh, after playing with the with Team America. And I it's the same year that the Minnesota Strikers came in. Joe Robbie brought his team up from Fort Lauderdale. And I immediately went to work for them as the director of their community relations program. And how was how so I did that, that I did that. I did that for, for me, it was an easy transition because I'd already done that for the last five years with them, uh, for, for the kicks. So okay. it's, it's what I was doing with the kicks. It was, I was a player, but I was also part of the community outreach as it was. So it was an easy task for me. Um, nice. I was hoping that I would play for the strikers, but, um, uh, the coach deemed it that I was, uh, not a good fit. So I stayed in the, I stayed in the front office. And then at the end of that year, um, the league was not doing too well. And so we were going into the indoor league and play the major indoor soccer league and play at Met Center. Um, and I became the coach straight after that season ended. They switched over from the coach who had just been in charge, and I took that. I took over that responsibility. So oh, I, 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 I utilized that time to learn a lot more about the game. In a different capacity, right? Because I mean, that's that was my next question. Actually, it segues perfectly. Is you know, as a player, you you prepare and you analyze things differently than when you're in like the front office. I, yeah, I can't even imagine what like where where was your head at through that whole process you know from training every single you know, day I, to... I, I, I found it very i found it very easy i mean I, as we spoke earlier I, I mentioned that when i was eight and nine i was coming back from a from games at birmingham cities st andrews stadium coming hmm. back to my community in northfield and showing them what the other what the team was just doing what the players were doing and some of the some of the intricacies of the game so i was to all intents and purposes, I was a coach from the age of eight, you know, eight through ten. Sure. Watching those games, transferring the information to my my peer group, whatever the whoever it was, uh, it was ready to listen, tell the story of the game that I just watched, and um, so I, I was always a coach. It was like sure. It, it was a natural thing. It was uh, on on the teams that I played. I was a natural leader. I. I took responsibility. I, I gave instructions. I made people feel good, play good, and hopefully uh, had good performances myself. And so sure. I was, uh, I, I took on a different responsibility when I was playing. I was so, always a nurturing, always a nurturing type of player. So when you and I we were talking before, this seemed to be like a question that that you were really excited about. And knowing everything that you know now, what yeah. would you tell? a 10 or 12 year old now, like what is something that, that you wish that you knew? What is something that, that would be really beneficial? Um, you could never be too fit. Can never be and, too fit. But you, but you need specialized training. Um, and I, by specialized training, I just mean um, trying to develop your fast twitch muscle uh, maker mm. is something that, I would tell a 10 and 12 year old to do that. I mean, mm. I, I have two grandkids who both play soccer here, but their, their environment that they're in now is so complicated, so busy mm. that they don't stop and listen to some of that. Mm. So I, I have a 13 year old who is an exceptional player, but he is small or smaller and the powers that be in the Twin Cities don't want him on the United program or mm. that accelerated program. And so um, he needs to go and do more plyometrics. He needs to do more uh, agility. He needs to have more mobility and strength in his legs. And so the other thing that needs to be done is that he can't do soccer and that type of training 12 months of the year, sure. you have to program it now so that you get the best out of that individual's 
capabilities. So the, these 10s and 12s, 12 year olds um, learn about plyometrics, learn about fast twitch muscles, learn about stretching, learn about the correct strength measurements that you need. You need to be balanced. And it's like, that's why I sort of premised it with, don't think about soccer all the time. When I was growing up, I did all the sports. Mm -hmm. at, at high school, I, I played cricket, rugby, I told you, soccer, field hockey. I ran track, I played cricket, I did basketball, I did badminton, I did tennis. And so it's like, I've got nine sports that I was playing. So I was a very well-rounded um, athlete, as it were. Mm -hmm. But the biggest factor would be, can you get it into another gear? Mm. With whatever you're doing, can you put it into another gear? And what is that gear? Um, the, and we mentioned it earlier. You, it, it's really impossible to coach speed, but you can train speed. Mm. For sure. I mean, we yeah, the biology of, of of a human being and where your genetics come from and stuff like that too. That's yeah, that's yeah. a big part of it. And yeah, I I totally well, agree well, well it, the... it's, it's my it, it's my grandson at the moment. He's thirteen, mm -hmm. and he hasn't had his growth spurt. Sure, he's like he's likely to have a growth spurt, and and his you know his, his mom and his father are tall or tall people. Sure, you know if he if if the kid gets as big as his dad he's going to be six one wow. and so that's a incredible size it's an incredible size i mean yeah. I, I i played at five i, I played at five ten and so sure. you know, having that extra two inches or three inches i would have been an unstoppable center back mm. you can't you, you can't do anything about that that's your in your genetics but yeah. knowing now what i know i would go i would supplement some speed and fast twitch muscle development and excite my know how to excite my fast twitch muscles so Absolutely. that i can react so much faster and, and the rest of it is being a student of the game i, I was fortunate that a couple of the fire teachers confided in me as a captain of the teams both rugby field hockey and soccer and they installed this ability to be able to analyze the game and absorb the game and also find the nuances within the game so that i can always come out on top sure yeah i mean that... i mean I, I i i learned from these fire teachers from them teaching me rugby and they were both rugby experts as it were not soccer experts they were rugby experts mm. but i learned from them how to dominate the opponent mm. Because yeah. I could make tackles and dispossess them and do it in a way that it ruffled their feathers. Sure. And that so makes, that makes perfect sense. I, 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 I didn't just I didn't just take the ball off them. I took a piece of them as well. Sure. They, of course. They, they didn't want to make another, they didn't want to come anywhere near me anymore. <laughs> so it was like the the physical attribute attributes of that and also the the mental confidence that I got from that. I, when I was playing in, in my career, then I'd take on the six foot two guys, no problem. Sure. I I I'd give up I give up my you know, four six inches of height, and and that wouldn't that wouldn't affect me at all. Sure. I would I would come out and still still get the ball, still make a presence, make people uncomfortable. That oh, I don't want to go anywhere near him. Right. I used to get I used to get really scary actually at times. So it's, it's, it's funny. I laugh at it. I laugh at it. All right, Alan. Well, I have I just have a, a handful of questions here. These are more of the rapid yeah. fire questions. Um, Absolutely. These, they don't really focus on soccer, but yet I think some of them do. Um, the very first question I have is, who's your biggest role model and why? My biggest role model and why. Um, I would, I would, I would have to say my, my stepfather and my mom, Sure, they taught me all of the things that I need to become, to be a good person in life, the, the life lessons they taught me 
paramount. Absolutely. I, I feel like that's great. Uh, who's your who's your favorite current player? Current player. Um, uh, good question. There's so many good players. So um, many. I've got to I've got to go Ronaldo. Ronaldo. He's so he's so dominant, mm. and he takes he takes the game to the opponent. He is so one-dimensional. He wants to put the ball in the back of the net. He wants to beat the other team. And and then straight after straight after that, you've got Messi. And then straight after that, you've got uh and uh and uh yeah. Yeah. So but at the at the the moment, I I, I think that uh yeah, Ronaldo Ronaldo. is 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 an is an animal. Awesome, awesome. If you could meet someone past or present, who would it be? And why? Past or present? Mm. There are too many people again. There's so <laughs> many. That, you know, bringing it down to one is really, really complex, really difficult. It, I agree. Um, That's why it I asked it. I, I, it but but I'll, I'll give you an answer. Sure. Winston Churchill. Why is that? Because he makes you think. He makes ah. statements that are so profound. And makes you think. I have a feeling and he was such a he was he was a he was such a strategist as well, obviously in war and also sure. in politics. Sure. So there's there's a good answer for you. All right. Winston favorite book. Churchill. What's your favorite book? My favorite book. Oh boy, what can I say? Um, hmm. I'm going to say. Lee Child, Night School. Night School, Lee Child. I, I'm always looking for a good book, so I'm always going to put that down. I'll let you into a secret. I, Just looking past your screen here, I have a bookshelf, and it's the easiest one for me to read. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, I have all of these books in front of me here. Sure. So, I just look up and Lee Child Night School is the most prominent up there. So I, I right. think I read some of it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna have to look into that one for sure. All right. Um who was a player that you hated defending? None of them. I loved it. You loved it. I I, I could I I'd back myself against anybody. Perfect. I mean I I, I know my 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 uh one of my favorite players that I tried to emulate was mm. Dave McKay. Dave, Dave McKay, McKay, Scottish guy, played played for Tottenham, and he then went to Derby County. Uh, Dave Darby. McKay. Okay. He was tough as nails. Tough as and nails. I, I, uh, I don't mind admitting that I sort of try to emulate him. And copy, Excellent. Copy is uh, he's standing here. All right, my last question that I have for you is who do you wish you would have played with past and present? Uh, Pele, Johan Cruyff, Maradona, um, because I played with a lot of good players as well. Yeah, but the, the, yeah, those, those are players that you go. Well, that would have been nice to, to, to um, have a, an opportunity to do that. I, I, I miss, I miss playing with Yellen Coif by uh, six weeks. Oh, that they, they couldn't afford both of us, so I came to LA and they shipped him off to Washington. Oh, wow, so that would have been, been something. With 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 Renus Mickles, the coach. Wow. So, wow! But that gave that gave me an opportunity to be brainwashed by Renus Mickles. <laughs> I, I I stayed with Renus. Uh, the first part of the season, I was recovering from an Achilles ankle tear, sure. uh, and so or tendon. Yeah, uh, yeah, it was a tear in my Achilles, um, and so I was able to spend time with him on the practice field, 
when the players were there, I was on the sidelines doing my own workouts type thing for for eight weeks. Sure. And then then I came back to play, and I signed was signed by the the LA Aztecs. And then I used to spend times on the planes and in the hotels. I used to just Rinas, let's sit down, talk talk to me. And it's like I was be, I, I became a sponge. <laughs> I, That's perfect. You know, That's perfect. Well, Alan, I really appreciate your time. I really appreciate you giving no us problem. all this insight about everything that you've had go on in, in your in your career. And you know, we really appreciate it and paving the path for for a lot of these young players nowadays too, because you do a lot of great work, you know, community, your, your community outreach has been continuing on even to today. So really appreciate it. And again, great role model. Thank you. Appreciate it. You take care. You as well. Wow. As you can hear, Alan's journey is unique and helps pave the path for future pros. I hope you enjoyed learning about Alan and learning the different cultures of how America was being introduced to soccer and what the system is like over in the UK. Thanks for joining me on Beyond the Bench. See you next time. Beyond the Bench is provided by Modi Sports. Modi Sports is the ultimate youth soccer training tool, utilizing 3D motion capture technology to teach soccer skills and drills that can be studied from any angle. Coaches, parents, and players can download the Modi Sports mobile app from the Apple App Store and Google Play. Check us out at modisports.com. Beyond the Bench is sponsored by Bipro, the ideal lifestyle choice for athletes and health enthusiasts by providing clean protein without artificial ingredients or sugars. Whether you're looking for a pre- or post-workout supplement or a quick drink on the go, visit modisports.com to receive 25% off your next Bipro item.